right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we are sitting down with Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson to talk about one of our faves, Flannery O'Connor. Dr. Wilson is the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas in the Humanities and Classical Education Graduate Program. She's the author of three books, including Giving the Devil His Due, which received a Christianity Today Book Award in the category of Arts and Culture, and most germane to our discussion today. She's an expert in the literature and writing of Flannery O'Connor. Dr. Hooten Wilson, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Thank you. I look forward to talking to you guys. Yeah, we are always excited about talking to a fellow Flannery fan. Uh, I have to say that I am a relatively recent uh, convert to the school of Flannery O'Connor. Sally has been more acquainted with her work for a longer period of time than I have. But just this past year, the two of us read through her short stories for the, well, I guess it was the second time Sally had read it all the way through. And it was the first time I had read them all the way through. And there's just so much to unpack there. We did a, a whole episode Um, afterwards with Sally's sister, where we talked about our favorite stories and the themes that ran throughout. And it was just, it was just very, uh, it was very powerful and beautiful and made me just want to devour everything she's ever written. So, um, I'm curious to know when did you first become interested in Flannery? I started reading Flannery when I was 15. I attended a program for talented and young gifted writers at Rhodes college during a summer. And I was under the impression uh, from my parents, really, that Christians were not supposed to write dark stories. And so I was trying my best to please them by writing really light, sanitary pieces. And my professor at Rhodes said, okay, you have talent and you're really misusing it. (laughs) So if you're a Christian and you want to write, you know, these dark pieces, try this. And he handed me the life you save may be your own. And I imitated that. I loved the story that I came up with. It felt like I had really discovered my voice by imitating Flannery's voice. And from then on, I've just been an adherent to Flannery O'Connor. So I read everything that she'd ever written, and I continued just diving into her work as a writer. And then I met Ralph Wood at a Calvin Festival of Faith and Writing conference when I was 22, and he had just written Flannery O'Connor and the Christ Haunted South. And he said, you need to go to grad school, study O'Connor with me. And I had never even considered the idea that you could study O'Connor. I just loved O'Connor. And so I went to grad school to study O'Connor and really has made it my life goal to make other people acquainted with her work. That's oh, fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I like your point about how you were sort of being feeling pressured as a young writer to write these sanitary, uh, almost Hallmarkian <laughs> yeah, stories. Yeah, clean and, and, and I whitewashed. Think that's one of the things I love about Flannery, right, is that we have a tendency in the Christian world to view things that are Christian. And I'm thinking mostly of art, literature, and music as those things, which are like totally clean that, uh, that don't sort of offend, offend. don't make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they're just, you know, they're fit for the Hallmark channel, but you know, and the thing about Flannery is that her work is more like, a Quentin Tarantino film than a Hallmark Channel movie, and <laughs> and it's because you know it's because Christianity is about real real world things. It's about uh, collisions with violent grace and Flannery, and it doesn't wrap up at the end in a nice little bow. Yeah, exactly. I mean the the real world is messy and grace is messy, and the collisions with grace are uh, cataclysmic and often violent. And Flannery, I think, gets that more than any person that I've ever read. Well, I think the difference between Flannery and Tarantino is that she ultimately believes in a comedic 
reading of reality that there is going to be paradise, but no one goes to paradise straight from hell. <laughs> so all of her work is purgatorial. All of it shows you the hell that you're in, or as she would say, the devil you're possessed by. But in order to exercise a demon, that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt to pull out things that are in our character and in our heart that we still want to hold on to, but that the Lord says, you know what, that's not supposed to be there. That's not how I made you. Uh, and that's going to be a painful process. And I think she shows the realism of that. But her goal is never to end in hell or leave people in hell. It's to depict hell and help us to find a way out of it. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I've talked to someone who I think would would say that, you know, Tarantino's, that's maybe not the most fair interpretation of Tarantino's work. I haven't seen enough of his stuff to say whether or not it is, but he certainly does strike me as less obviously not nihilistic than Flannery, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm not going to be a Tarantino critic, but um, because I actually do enjoy his work, but I do feel like as much as he gets to is, hey, guess what? We're possessed by demons. And O'Connor, I feel like does a, she pushes a little bit past that too. Mm. And then there's purgatory yeah. and then there's the refinement process in which um, you are actually, the dross is, is taken away from the gold and uh, there's something else there. Oh yeah, no, I, I definitely like that distinction and I can appreciate it. And I think it's germane to the centerpiece that I wanted, the centerpiece of our discussion that we want to have with you today, which is that um, you commented, you wrote a, a piece in the journal First Things responding to a claim by literary critic Paul Ely um, in The New Yorker, in which he basically argued that Flannery O'Connor was racist to some degree. And the title of mm-hmm. the the title of Paul Ely's work was um, How Racist Was Flannery O'Connor? And it reminds me a little bit of the question, like, how long have you been beating your wife, right? You were, um, you were you can't assuming... can't answer it well. <laughs> yeah, you can't answer it well because you're, uh, you're assuming the premise is true and you're just asking, you know, to what degree it is true. Yeah, and then... That's a great point. How strongly should we discard all of her works because now we found out that she's racist. Right. And then your response, Jessica, yeah. was how Flannery fought racism. But I want to ask you a little bit more about that. And maybe we can use what you were just saying about Flannery's work as a launching point, because her point is that we're all inhabited by demons or, or, you know, to some degree, we're Mm -hmm. all affected by fighting some sort of sin and we all need this cleansing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to unpack in the early article, but to me, this, the strongest point or maybe the weakest point of his argument was that, you know, he, he, he cited some personal letters and personal correspondence that Flannery had written to a friend in which she acknowledged that she was a you know segregationist by inclination and a, a an, an integrationist mm-hmm. by principle, and um, you know so she was basically confiding to this person that I know what the right answer is, but my nature inclines me to the wrong answer, and and Paul Ely mm-hmm. from his like postmodern pulpit points at her and says, "Aha, look, so she's racist." See, um, and I think the reality mm-hmm. is much more complicated than that because Flannery is an artist who understands this constant conflict between nature and grace in the Christian soul and how better for her to recognize that than, than in her own self. And so, you know, to me, it's, it doesn't do justice to, to that, to, to Flannery, to her person, to her ideas to just say, you know, she was racist. Uh, the only question is how racist. Um, and I think it's a point that, that you made pretty right. well. Um, so how would you respond or how did you respond in your article? What's the, what's the counter argument to this claim by Paul Ely that Flannery was racist? Yeah, I mean, to to be fair to Paul, so someone recently asked me, okay, what's good about what Paul's doing? I, I think he might have had the intention to get ahead of cancel culture and to maybe rescue her from getting canceled. I think his goal was, you know, because I love 
just talking from Paul's perspective, but because I love Flannery, let me protect her by, by being her, her worst critic, right? Before her enemies get to her and actually criticize her. Um, but that goal actually plays the same game. And I don't think that it's right to play that game. I don't think we can do this labeling thing fairly. Labeling just caricatures people. It reduces them. It doesn't acknowledge the complexity of the human person. I mean, when I think of, um, you know, my husband and I started going to a church in which um, women lead prayers and women are ministers and things like that. When we started going that direction, um, he did not feel comfortable with women up in front of the congregation, right? He was raised in a tradition where that didn't happen. So, but I'm not going to say how patriarchal is my husband because by habit, he was not used to seeing something that he then theologically thought to be correct, right? So he has to change his habit or change the practices in his culture to align with what he learned theologically, so to be fair to O'Connor, the same kind of principle applies. If you learn that something is theologically true, but you've been practicing a certain kind of habit your whole life, you can't instantaneously change that habit. And that's what O'Connor was trying to get at that I think Paul misreads. Is he's seeing at the end of her life that she still had these habits, but it was 1964, right? She died before even the really big push. I mean, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. In, when she was on her hospital bed. These are things that she just didn't have the privilege of getting to see come up. If she would have lived longer, I hope that she was going down a road that was promising, um, where the segregationists in her would have died out, um, and those habits would have been replaced by the integrationists in her, the ideal that she wanted. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that critique. I also appreciate you being charitable towards Paul. I mean, I'll, I will also say I did my graduate thesis on Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul has written on Niebuhr quite a bit as well. And I appreciate his work elsewhere. And I know he's, I know he's appreciative of Flannery O'Connor. So this is not a cancel mm-hmm. crusade as we often see. Um, I, I do think that it's ill-advised for some of the reasons that you said already. I will also say in Paul's offense, I criticize the headline of this piece, but you know, you never write your own headline. That's yeah. always an editor's decision. So, right. you know, right. in, in fairness to Paul, he probably read that headline and cringed as well. Um, <laughs> but but there's, a, there's there's another aspect of this that I, I, I think is worth mentioning. And that's, you know, the, the question is how racist was Flannery O'Connor? And again, that's the editor's headline, but that's, that's a, the question essentially that Paul explores in the piece. And there's mm-hmm. a degree to which I wonder if Flannery would respond to that and say, yeah, that is a fair question. In, 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 and it's a fair question right. to ask that about every single one of us, right? I mean, take, take any person, mm-hmm. let's, let's use me for an example, take any person and take any vice and ask how, immersed in this vice I am. And that's a fair question. And I'll, I'll tell you, that's a fair, how, how racist is Zach? How lustful is Zach? How jealous is Zach? How greedy is Zach? How murderous is Zach? Right. The, the, the point of Flannery's writing is to remind us that, that, you know, the, the depths of wickedness in the human person are unfathomable. Uh, but the only Mm -hmm. thing that's, that's less fathomable than that is the grace of God that we are all desperately in need of. And so, but don't deserve, but don't deserve. And so her characters right. repeatedly collide with this grace in fantastic ways. And so to me, I think that the question of how racist was Flannery O'Connor is the wrong question. The question that we need to be right. asking is how effectively does Flannery O'Connor remind us of our own wickedness and yeah. remind us that we need the grace of Jesus Christ, that, that, that we need our wickedness redeemed. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, I think we can recognize that message in her writing, especially along the lines of race, but not exclusively along the lines of race. That she reminds us we're fallen, wicked people 
who need to be redeemed. And I, I think I said something in my piece along the lines of if we start judging all writers and every time we find sin, we're going to be left with no art. Because what happens in Flannery's work that Ely is ignoring is he's making it as though her letters and her art were the same. He's conflating her work and saying we have to judge her, her work biographically. I don't, I don't think that that's what most scholars would agree with, is that you, you don't want to look at a, a writer's work only through the lens of their biography. It should be able to stand on its own and teach you something apart from the sins of the author, right? Uh, and so I, I tried to argue that we also need to pay more attention to her work and not as much to her sin as a person. Yeah, I think that's true. But how how far do you think that goes, right? Because let's just invoke Godwin's law right now and say, you know, how much should we like mm-hmm. pay attention to Hitler's art, right? If Hitler was a, a he might have actually done some art. I don't know. But let's let's say Hitler was an artist who wrote these, he made these he beautiful masterpieces. Was an okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I didn't totally make that up. Yeah, he was. He was an artist. So how, how carefully should we, should we, you know, critique and explore the art of Adolf Hitler? I mean, I think at some point, don't we have to acknowledge that the right. sins of the author have to factor into our evaluation of the art? Um, I don't, I don't know. I think it's a good question, but at the same time, that's the difference between art and propaganda. So yeah. art that is actually art, that is facing mysteries, that is trying to tell the truth, it's going to look different than propaganda or speeches along those lines. And so, you know, we're not going to judge mine comp separate from what Hitler actually did, right? We're going to be able to see those two in connection. Yeah. Um, but something like Aristotle, right? Reaching towards these ideals, and yet he was racist and misogynist. Well, we're not going to stop studying Aristotle simply because he held those beliefs in practice. We're going to assess his work and judge the truth of it um, and be able to discern those things. I, th- I think it's the same with, you know, Dostoevsky was an anti-Semite. I don't read Dostoevsky to hear what he thought on Jews. Um, a lot of his non, you know, nonfiction, his letters and editorials were anti-Semitic. Right. But his fiction doesn't show that. His fiction speaks truth. And, and so, you know, you could go on and on with different writers that we love. Sometimes their nonfiction or their arguments, right, their opinion pieces don't correlate with the ideals and the truth that they end up telling in their poetry or their fiction. And I think you made the point, too, that with Flannery, it's, it's a specific case of her recognizing her tendency towards racism, or at least her upbringing in a racist mm-hmm. culture, and actually trying to combat that in her stories. So it's not even that she struggled with this right. and then didn't touch it in her work. And so we can kind of just sideline it and appreciate the other truths that she brings forth in her writing. But it's actually that she dealt with racism and she she pointed yeah. out the bigotry of her characters and 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 condemn them for it. I mean, anyone who uses the N-word in her stories does not fare well. <laughs> right. No, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Yes, she was not, because she was always chasing the truth in the art, she does not portray things according to how she wants to see them. Um, she has that famous quote, you know, truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Mm. In actual fact, most of her characters, once they learn the truth, they have to then judge themselves against it. And so she always thought the starting point to self-knowledge was humility. You recognize what you lack in regard to the truth. And because she's able to tell that kind of truth about her characters, you have white characters who are bigoted and they don't end well. They usually fall off whatever pedestal they thought they were on. And black characters are never treated sentimentally. Um, I think it's important 
you know, Hilton Owls, uh, the African-American writer who wrote this great piece on O'Connor years ago, he says, you know, there was no sentimentality. There was no patronizing with her characters. And that's why he could appreciate her work. This is, you know, only a decade after Gone with the Wind, right? I mean, this is just so close to that, you know, that grand premiere that took place in Atlanta. And yet her work looks nothing like Margaret Mitchell. Yeah, that's a great point. So why do you think a casual observer or a new reader of Flannery's works might confuse her and or might focus too much on her racism or think that she actually is promoting racist ideas? I think that there's a lot of sensitivity to language. We would never write stories now with the N-word. And most people who even publish, right, on the N-word, they kind of use the Victorian out, escape and cancel the word. <laughs> they only write in dash. And even when we're talking right now, we're, we're, you know, we're censoring ourselves from, from using that language. And O'Connor wasn't in a culture that censored that. They knew it was impolite. That's the way they phrased it. They knew that it was, um, it usually denoted a lower class actually at the time. And so she shows her characters that have this problematic mindset using those words. Now we're so sensitive that even the sight of those words throws us off for the story. I mean, that's why you have Mark Twain being censored and um, people can't use that kind of language. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. That's a good point. I read about sort of how our, even, our, even just our shifting, uh, the shifting grounds of our etymology or linguistics can shape mm-hmm. how we evaluate things even 50 years later, as is the case here. I mean, it's, it's I think to Sally, your question I'm imagining a first time reader of Flannery O'Connor who opens up the short stories and then sees the title, you know, Mm -hmm. the artificial N word and thinks like, Oh my goodness, what, Mm -hmm. what racist diatribe am I holding right now? Um, so that's, it is is important to remember the differences between our milieu and the cultural and literary milieu in which she's writing then. Yeah. And you know, what's so great that you bring up that story because even the fact that it's titled artificial, the whole story is actually trying to throw out that concept. Yeah. I mean, it is trying to show that race or the dehumanization that's caused by race and by using that language is an artificial construct that has to be taught. You have to train people to be racist, right? Little children do not see that distinction the way that adults in America do. And O'Connor is lifting the veil and revealing that to her society and culture. And yet, people don't want to teach that story because it makes students uncomfortable in the classroom. That's a great point. I'm reading through white fragility by Robin D'Angelo right now, which as you're probably aware is one of the most talked about books in our Mm -hmm. current national moment uh, by Robin Mm D'Angelo, who's a white corporate consultant and has gone around to corporations and try to train them on, um, you know, recognizing uh, race and unconscious bias and all these things. The book has some, has some, I think good impulses in general. It's, I mean, it's not well written. It's not particularly well researched. Um, I don't have a whole lot of good things to say about it. We might do a future episode on it. But as you were talking about that, <laughs> Jessica, I was just thinking about how how, how, like how much more I've taken from Flannery's fiction than I am from this, um, you know, mostly ridiculous book by Robin D'Angelo. And as I'm thinking about that, I mean, we, we've already talked about some of these themes, right? Uh, even just the, the name of the short story that we were just talking about or... The fact that Flannery right. calls us all to to a rigorous self examination, but what else would you say mm-hmm. Flannery has to teach us in our in our modern race, our discourse on race, our our national moment now, where we're evaluating how we have treated the other for so long? I, I think one of the 
greatest contentions that O'Connor makes in her fiction is that she saw a lot of white people who had learned that racism was wrong. And so they were empowered by this cause. And they, instead of considering charity and the source of justice being in charity, they really got excited about the cause, which turns them a lot of times into um, more problematic uh, people to have on your side than if they had been Christian. So she has this friend who's in New York, for example, and they're corresponding about race and O'Connor is pretending to be even more racist than she is in order to just kind of um, get up the hide of her, of her correspondence. And the reason why is because it really bothered her how the civil, you know, these civil rights activists were using black people as pawns. She thought, you're no better than the people who use them as field hands if you're using them as pawns for your cause to make yourself feel like you are righteous and feel like you are doing something good with your life on their behalf. You're not treating them like people. You're not talking to them as neighbors. You're not seeing Christ in them. And so O'Connor, in her short stories, she sees even the characters who are not racist having their own kind of pride that we have to look at, right? Um, Our eagerness to throw down statues without really discerning which ones we should put down and which ones we should replace. Our eagerness to fight on the right side without considering if it's God's side. And O'Connor makes us look at that. She makes us slow down. By reading her stories, we really have to live in them. We experience them. And a lot of times we're humbled or humiliated with her characters. So I think that her work does the right kind of scandalizing, right? It does the right kind of making us stop and stumble and see things more clearly. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, there's a lot of virtue signaling that goes on in our culture today. And it's easy to think that once you've done a self-examination and determined that, no, I'm not actually racist, then you're good to go and you can feel proud of yourself. But there's actually so much more to it than that. And to seeing the other person, whether they're black or Latino or whatever their race is, or just if they're different in some way, if they're um, Mrs. Turpin in Revelation, seeing poor people or people who um, are just, yeah, just different than her and realizing that we still have other prejudices and it's not enough to... um, we, we, we won't, we won't just arrive at this point of, of, um, of humility. Um, and, and that's something that we need to be working on throughout our entire life, which seems to be something that Flannery recognized in herself. Well, Sally, I think that's just a really great point that we're goods under construction, right? That's the O'Connor phrase, goods under construction, that we're kind of in process. And I really feel like people need to listen to that song from Avenue Q a lot more. The song, everyone's a little bit racist sometimes because, <laughs> It's not really just a label you can put on someone and you're done with them or you're done with that book or you're done with that institution. Instead, you have to recognize that racism is about participating in a system or fighting that participation in the system. It's not, it's not just a label we can keep throwing around. Every day you're making decisions to either be more racist or less racist with how you treat people, with how you support certain speakers, with how you buy certain books. Um, all of these decisions, just just like fighting against pride or like you guys have mentioned before, fighting against sin, um, it's about participation or not. It's not just a label. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear what your favorite short story of Flannery O'Connor's is. 
Oh, I love Greenleaf. Uh, Greenleaf is my absolute favorite. If you take the first page of Greenleaf, you can analyze each word. I do this really fun thing with my students sometimes. I'll start teaching that story and I'll have them, you know, someone please read this and they'll read the first word and I'll make them stop. And I'll read the second word and make them stop because that one is just written almost like a poem with every single piece. It's, it's perfect. It all points to this greater reality beyond the literal in that story. I've got, I've got it right in front of me now. Can I, um, can I read the first paragraph and then? Sure, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So here it is. Mrs. May's bedroom window was low and faced on the east and the bull, silvered in the moonlight, stood under it, his head raised as if he listened, like some patient god come down to woo her for a stir inside the room. The window was dark and the sound of her breathing too light to be carried outside. Clouds crossing the moon blackened him and in the dark he began to tear at the hedge. Presently they passed and he appeared again in the same spot, chewing steadily, with a hedge wreath that he, that he had ripped loose for himself, caught in the tips of his horns. When the moon drifted into retirement again, there was nothing to mark his place but the sound of steady chewing. Then, abruptly, a pink glow filled the window. Bars of light slid across him as the Venetian blind was slit. He took a step backward and lowered his head, as if to show the wreath across his horns. Oh, it's so fantastic. All right, so walk us, walk us through some things that, that you see going on there as, a, as an English professor. I know. I wish I had it. In, I wish I had it in front of me. So you do the contrast of light and the contrast of the source of light in there. Um, so the darkness that's surrounding Mrs. May, right, versus the light that's kind of highlighting the bull. Um, you walk through when she does turn on the light. It's artificial. It's pink. Later on, like the par- next paragraph, you see she actually has like curlers in her hair and a face mask on. She's all about the pretense, all about the superficial all about the presence, right? What people see, the appearance of things, not really digging underneath them versus the bull is digging underneath the hedgerow. So you already see that the bull's intention is to get underneath things and not just deal with surface reality. Um, the window faces the east, right? In the Catholic church, um, of course, the east is where the sun, S-O-N and sun, rise. And so that's where we face. It's also east of Jerusalem. Um, so you have this, this indication of where she should be facing. Uh, the bedroom window is low. She's actually down, though she doesn't recognize it. And the first thing she does is stand. Um, all of O'Connor's characters who deal with side usually raise themselves. They usually lift themselves up and then they're brought lowered. So you have, you know, the grandmother falls into a ditch or um, you have Ruby Turpin step down from the pig pen. Um, so there's this, always this movement in O'Connor with, with light, with sound, with color, um, with up and down and the trajectory of the characters. And those things always signal a figurative or spiritual meaning and not just the literal. So even as readers, we have to kind of practice that digging. We have to dig underneath each word and what it means um, because she always has more richness there than just the literal surface level reading of the story. That's great. And I think um, for all the good that Paul was trying to do in his article, he he wasn't really doing that. You know, he wasn't really digging beneath the surface when he was interpreting Revelation. At least it didn't seem like it from his article. Mm-hmm. And he just um, and, and to I, I was I was offended for Flannery that he felt that because she was identifying with Mrs. Turpin, that meant that she was praising all of Mrs. Turpin's sins and all of her all of her right. character flaws. Because I think if we don't come away from Flannery O'Connor's stories having 
having identified with one of her characters or many of her characters or all of her characters, then then we've just missed the mark entirely. Right. You can't be self-satisfied if you see yourself in an O'Connor character. It's usually the opposite. I have students who read these characters, they see themselves in it, and that's what convicts them, right? If they saw themselves as Mrs. Turpin or Mrs. May in this story or Julius, they usually come to final exam crying. I didn't realize what I was like until I saw myself in that person. Yeah. And I don't want to be like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. And it makes sense, though, because I was thinking as you were talking a few minutes ago, Jessica, about how when you read an O'Connor story, there's no there's no typical hero. Right. I mean, you can you can watch yeah. like an Avengers yeah. film or read any, you know, modern, maybe not any modern novel, many modern novels. And you find someone who is mm-hmm. an almost flawless character and maybe they have one serious vice. Uh, you know, they Mm-hmm. They chain smoke cigarettes or they have, you know, throw, throw a few too many ones back every now and then. Right. But 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 right. fundamentally, right, they're, they're morally good. They're on the right side fighting evil, et cetera. There's not mm-hmm. the, there's not those characters in Flannery. And so as you're reading, I think naturally you always want to in, incline to somebody, but you, you don't incline towards flawless characters. You incline towards very flawed characters. And I think right. in that sense, she's helping us hold up a mirror to ourselves and seeing how deeply flawed we, in fact, are. And even if there is a change right at the end of her stories where someone encounters grace and encounters their own sin and realizes that they need to change and you you can imagine that they're starting to step off onto the right path and turn in the right direction, you know that there's so much farther to go. And you mentioned purgatory yes. and purification. And that, I mean, that's that's like the rest of each short story is, is that you can imagine their purification process and their purgatorial process of, um, of um, walking that road towards towards the ultimate end heaven. Well, and what I always tell readers of O'Connor is the reason the story ends at the moment of grace has less to do with watching the character than walk down that path towards sainthood and more to do with, okay, you're the reader. You're the one who's alive and breathing. What are you doing after this moment of grace? Right. Because you're the one that now has to decide which path you're stepping on and which direction you're heading. Yeah. That's great. And I love how Flannery emphasizes that grace is not cheap, right? To use a, a Bonhoeffer yeah. phrase, right? There's no such thing as cheap <laughs> grace. And grace. so yeah. when grace comes at us, it comes at us hard and it sometimes mm-hmm. wrecks us and totally disrupts our lives and comes at great personal Yeah, it's going to require cost. a lot yeah. of change and, and, and hurt. Mm-hmm. And to use maybe one of the strongest or most graphic examples, Greenleaf, which is the one that you said is your favorite, Jessica. Yeah, I was going to say that, Zach. I was going to say, if you if you look at Greenleaf, that is a perfect example. The God comes down to woo her. He bows before her and shows his crown of thorns in that instance. And instead, what does she do? She goes after him with a gun. Yeah. She hunts him down for trespassing on her property. And when he actually chases her down and she gets bored, sorry to ruin the end of the story, but she gets bored <laughs> by the bull. She finds the sight that is revealed to her, right? It says that she sees before her the dark wounds on the sky and the light is unbearable. So even the revelation, she can't handle it, right? So there's this, you know, not every character in O'Connor actually accepts their moment of grace. Uh, Characters like Mrs. Greenleaf, they had every chance throughout the story to accept it and then she rejects it. Or, you know, I, I would argue she rejects it. But the thing about O'Connor is that you get to have these debates and these discussions um, <laughs> because O'Connor doesn't preach at you. So there's not one right way to read the O'Connor story. But from my perspective, she gets wooed. She gets 
chased by this country suitor that she finds unsuitable. And it's God <laughs> that she finds unsuitable. That's a great explanation of the end. I, I love it. Um, I, we've talked to some people who have said, I've tried to read Flannery. It's just a little bit much. I mean, Greenleaves that you just told the story about, right? It's, you know, if we were to write yeah. a, a two sentence summary of this, it's, you know, a woman gets angry at a, uh, at a bull that keeps, <laughs> you know, keeps trespassing on her yard. Right. Uh, she eventually directs uh, one of her, her hired servants to mm-hmm. kill this bull and eventually the bull gores her at the end, right? Uh, like that does right. not sound like a story that is just wrapped in wonder and illuminates the deepest parts of the human soul. And I think if you're not, if you're not reading it um, with an appropriate guide, uh, you, you mm-hmm. might miss the forest for the trees. I've read all the short stories. I do not pretend to understand every single one of them by any means. And so as, even as I was reading, right. I was often just like, I wish I had a resource to help me better understand what's Absolutely. going on here. So would you have any recommendations for our listeners who think, you know, who are compelled by our conversation here and think I need to get into Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any suggestions for resources, maybe a companion reader or a website or a free course, or maybe work that you've written before that can help people understand what Flannery is all about? Yeah, I wrote, I mean, I did write a book, Giving the Devil is Due, where I mostly address what's going on with her demonic, because a lot of people have confusion about that. But on a larger scale, Ralph Wood's Christ Haunted South, Flannery O'Connor and the Christ Haunted South, I think is a really great resource. Um, Michael Bruner has a recent book called The Subversive Gospel of Flannery O'Connor, and I think that's, he's a theologian who addresses her work theologically. Um, Passing by the Dragon by uh, Michael Ramsey is about the biblical overtones in Flannery O'Connor. So I think there are some resources. You're making me feel like I need to just kind of write like a companion to reading Flannery O'Connor. That would be really That would be awesome. Because if you imagine, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe I should do that. Um, if you imagine, you know, O'Connor is trying to write like the scriptures. She's imitating Christ in the way that she knows how, which is being a writer. And throughout the scripture, whenever Jesus tells stories, his apostles want to know, Okay, can you tell us what that means? Right. That's really confusing. Right. <laughs> right? And O'Connor is trying to train you to hear the voice of God by getting you to practice reading confusing things and having the patience and the persistence to keep looking at the mystery, looking at it more closely, paying more attention than you did the time before, thinking through words and what they mean and what they could mean. She really is trying to teach people how to read spiritually in her work. And so when you read O'Connor, and if you don't like it, I can't convince you to like it, but do you have the character necessary to keep reading things that aren't centered on your preferences? And if, if you don't, then you're probably not going to receive the spiritual revelation that can be found there. Um, but if you can get yourself out of the mindset that you're supposed to read only for your own enjoyment and, you know, temporary pleasure, you're, you're going to miss something if, unless you get out of that. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the simplest advice when someone's struggling with Flannery O'Connor, I feel like is just to keep reading, just like, just immerse yourself, yeah. just read all the short stories. Don't just read one. Don't just read two. Because right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's in my limited experience reading her. That's what I've found is that the more of them you read, the more it makes sense. And the more you mm-hmm. can find connections between the stories. Well, and that, that analogy between Flannery, Flannery stories or writing and Jesus's parables that makes sense too with what mm-hmm. you were just saying, Sally, right? I mean, you read one parable of Jesus and you're like, I, I have no idea what's going on here. Right. This, you know, this person was thrown out of a vineyard. Okay. I don't know right. what's, yeah. you know, but, but you read more and then you start to, you start to assemble a more holistic yeah. picture of what's going on. Right. So yeah, I can definitely see how Flannery is right. the same way. 
and reading the Bible. Read, I mean, if you read the Bible and read O'Connor, that will also make sense of her work because the Bible should be the lens that you apply to O'Connor's system to understand what she's doing. Everything's biblical in her work. That, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, it's the that that's the ultimate companion volume. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jessica, we look forward to uh, what's hopefully going to be your forthcoming companion volume, the uh, the Flannery O'Connor Reader. That's that's going to be a great book. <laughs> yep, I needed I needed another book on my to do list. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if it's if it's you know next year or ten years hence, we'll look forward to reading it whenever you can get around to it. Oh, so, thank you. Thanks for joining us thank on you. this episode of Vernacular Podcast. Uh, to our readers, if you want to. Uh, acquaint yourselves with uh, Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson's work. We'll link to her site on our uh, on our uh, show notes, uh, and you can also check out her book that she mentioned just a few minutes ago, "Giving the Devil His Due." And we'll also link to the other resources that uh, that she mentioned as well, as far as uh, helping you understand the work of Flannery O'Connor. And we encourage you to read Flannery O'Connor; it's really great stuff. Uh, obviously, it's uh, motivated Dr. Hooten Wilson in various professional and personal ways, and certainly motivated us in the same. So. Dr. Hooten Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. This is great. You know that Feeling better than ever When I'm by your side